Dressed? The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dressed listeners, welcome back. And I say back because this is part two of our two-part episode with Elise S. Carter, who joined us on Tuesday to discuss her book, The Red Menace, How Lipstick Changed the Face of American History. And we should also want to note here that it is not quite out yet, but it is absolutely now available for pre-order. Cass, you know, I'm lipstick obsessed, and I just could not wait to share this incredibly well-researched book with our listeners. Oh, and I'm sure our listeners who have already tuned into part one cannot wait to hear more. So without further ado, we jump back into our conversation with Elise. Welcome back. So I think we have to move along into the 1970s now because we're tiptoeing around that time. Let's talk about feminism and the use of cosmetics because the second wave of feminism took place in the U.S. in the 1970s, as I'm sure many of our listeners already know. And I stress the second wave here because the first wave took place 100 years prior, if not even farther back than that. Just generally speaking, what was the stance of the use of makeup within the feminist movement in the 19th century, and this is a time when cosmetics were admittedly far less commonplace, the use of. And then also, how did the movement in the 1970s balance, as you say, feminism and femininity? These are both interesting. You know, if you're talking about like Seneca Convention feminists, this first wave, Carrie Chapman Cat, and, and all the women with three names, they were against it, but they were also just very practical. And like, even the popular press in the early 1900s and 19-teens sort of latches on to the notion of the like very dour feminist, like they wear ugly shoes and they're pinched and they're like not fun. And so that becomes the popular notion of a feminist is that they're like ugly and man-hating and, and just no fun at all. I think some people still think this, by yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah. Shockingly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not saying like... Certain segments of Fox News and so on are not still flogging this misnomer. And by the time they get suffrage passed, they're really kind of flailing around for what to do next. And they kind of, you know, it's kind of like the dog that catches a car. You know, they're like, what do we do ourselves? And you hear in their first conventions in the early 20s, they're polling the members and they're like, well, what do we, you know, we're, we're feeling ourselves. We're really strong. What do we take care of now? And they sort of pull the members and some of the members were like, down with makeup. And they really hated it. There's an early, there's one woman who they referred to as Dr. Female or Dr. Feminine. Like, cause it's so weird that doctors in front of a woman's name, they're like, she's a doctor, but she's also a lady. It's so <laughs> weird to people. And she sort of invents in her own way, the concept of the male gaze and how to get rid of it. And part of that is by ditching makeup altogether and that women, all women who wear makeup are stupid. Both genuinely and in the public consciousness, there's a pitting of makeup 
against feminism. And that's partially true and partially not true. So by the time we get to the 60s, let's, and we talk about the, the feminist wave of the 60s, which admittedly is very white. It is not an inclusive feminism. We get to the 1969 Miss America pageant, and there's this huge protest. And this is where the myth of the bra burning comes out. They like have a, a protest, and part of this, they get a, a trash can, and they throw in girdles, and they throw in high heels, and they throw in curlers, and they throw in lipstick, and they throw in bras. They do not light it on fire because the police wouldn't let them for safety reasons. And there are photos of this, by the way. I, we should... They were taken by female photographers because they refused to allow themselves to be covered by men. So they requested female photographers and reporters. And so we get this myth of the bra-burning feminist. Um, not the lipstick burning. It's, it's specifically bra-burning and probably because that's just sexier. So beauty is really in this way pitted against feminism. And feminism is always in the popular culture or not always, like it's getting a little better, but but is generally going to be cast as a pushy broads who are a pain in the ass. Uh-huh. And as we enter the 70s, more women are entering the workforce. You know, we're fighting for the ERA, but like in this, we're very, in this sort of post-Watergate, Vietnam swirl, these things become more dissolute. You know, it's hard to keep up the momentum. You know, professional women start to think like, well, maybe I want to wear a little lipstick. You know, I'm going to the office. I want to look nice. Maybe I want to wear a lipstick. Am I a traitor to the cause? And so specific, very specifically, and Charles Robson is like, why is Gloria Steinem such a pain in the ass? Why isn't she a nicer bra? <laughs> She's real pretty. And he's, he's the owner of Revlon, by the way. He changed it from his last name, Revson, to Revlon. Yeah. The L is actually for his first partner. Mm-hmm. So eventually... You know, like he's like, ah, women are these pushy broads. And, you know, even like Rubenstein, which is now being run by her niece, Mala, are are sort of figuring out, like, how do we thread the needle between feminism and women's power and selling them makeup? And Elon Specht, who is a copywriter at McCann Erickson, comes up with the concept of because we're worth it. That turns makeup into power that mm-hmm. turns makeup into self-determination and self-expression and rewarding yourself and it becomes about you and not just about snagging a husband catching a man <laughs> yeah and so that is a genius genius piece of marketing and i think it still pops up every once in a while i think they still they were still using it for a long long time and i, I they find a way to turn makeup into empowerment. And I, I'm not saying it's not, it certainly is. It certainly can be, but it's an interesting because they find a way to use the energy of the women's movement to bring them in as consumers. That is still something you very much see that sort of ethos is something you still very much see. And it's a struggle. Like it's wonderful that like Brands now are not every are using non-binary models and trans models. And so that's wonderful. It can also be very mercenary. But this is a this is where that evolves from, that values marketing of fitting in with people's lifestyle and who the how they see themselves rather than we'll tell you what you want. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, absolutely. You want berries this season. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of, of the shifting landscapes of gender relations, you know, this is really interesting because looking back historically, societal dictates as to who can and can't wear makeup. Uh, this is This is where things are very revealing because in the 18th century, it wasn't uncommon at all for all genders to kind of dabble in a little pots of paint and powder. But this changes in the 19th century, really. It's it's like that line in the sand between what is gender appropriate in terms of the use of cosmetics. That line was drawn a little deeper, I would say, in the 19th century. And, and this all happens around the same time that lace, jewels, pastels, things like this were all kind of deemed now feminine. But all of this being said, uh, you give many examples in the book of how makeup and lipstick in particular has been used to defy the construct of the gender binary. So what do you think it is about lipstick that holds the power to provoke? And might you mention a few of the gender provocateurs that you discuss in the book? Yeah, that was also fascinating to me. I I think one of the reasons just from the outset that we gave up in the you look at the 18th century and everyone Western, you'll think of like King Louis XIV, you know, like the Sun King and giant curly wigs and powdered. And America, even though the founding fathers had the powdered wigs, if not the makeups and the patches and the rouge, they dropped that real quick within about a generation because it's very much about setting up America as its own thing when we set up its independence. And we are going to reject anything that is continental, anything that is aristocratic, anything that sort of smacks of royalty. So that goes out the window. And again, we're a pioneer nation. Like even in the city, you know, you like New York has cows wandering around in it. Even our bigger cities, like we're on the frontier. So that goes out the window real quick in America. And it, so it becomes an issue of class. And yes, the Victorians are very big on consolidating gender norms. Like, so the second, I, uh, my theory is that drag performance, like performative gender is about five minutes older than gender norms. Like we all sit down and we're like, men don't wear skirts. And then some guy's like, look at me, I'm wearing a dress. It's <laughs> that probably dates back to like, the second we I, we got out of the caves, I don't even know. It's it's so inconceivably old. So the Victorian era really solidifies that, and it appeals a great deal to the American puritanical nature. Yes, that we are very we can be a sort of very prim and you know tight ass nation in a lot of ways. You know there there are newspaper reports in the during the Civil War that. A raven-haired beauty was conning men out of jewelry and money. And it turns out that she was not a she at all. She was a man. But the newspaper is like, well, in all fairness, she was real pretty. (laughs) (laughs) They she got engaged to a guy and they were like, it's not his fault. She tricked him. You know, which is entirely the way, you know, to some extent, the way we treat makeup and women as as a fundamentally dishonest thing. So, yeah, I mean, obviously there are always people who are gender non-conforming that always has and always will exist. And they are, you know, for the most part of our history, shoved deep, deep underground, uh, unfortunately. You know, and people are just weird and squicky about breaking that in any way. And really cosmetics became like a demarcator of that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, like, 
there's Victorian newspaper accounts like, don't tell anything to your pharmacist what I, is what I'm saying, because they would rat you out. There are all these articles about like pharmacists, in Ohio, and mainly in Ohio, being like, you know, there are guys who wear powder. Like, and it was pretty much because they were, you know, it sounded a lot less like a straight gay thing and more like these people had would wake up with wicked hangovers and they're like, how can I look alive again? <laughs> and so we get very into the concept of the dandy and the dude, and we're very uncomfortable with that. You know, I'm old enough to remember the metrosexual and like how. Oh, yeah. Same. So mm-hmm. that is not something we are letting go of. It remains a very underground phenomenon unless it's done in a way that is very mocking to women and is not intended to deceive. Like Milton Berle has a hit TV show in the 50s, but female impersonation is still like illegal. It's, it's illegal up until 1970 in New York. And so I was, I was quite honored and, and, and proud to bring in like Marsha P. Johnson, um, who was an activist for trans rights. And, you know, she... One is she's credited with what being one of the people who kicked off the Stonewall wall riots. And I think she had just had it. She had just, she had decided, you know, she's like, this is who I am and the world can just deal with it. And I am going to walk down the street with my lipstick on and my head held high and flowers in my hair and the rest of the world can just suck it up. And of course, unfortunately, that's not the way it worked. She took, you know, tons of abuse, but there's something so incredibly brave and pioneering about that. Absolutely. And so for her, it was a literal civil right. Like she was homeless for a great deal of the time and would go into Bloomingdale's or Macy's or Altman's when that existed and like make up her face because she wanted to be Marsha. She was born Malcolm and the world be damned. She was going to do it. That was her civil right. You know, she was, she's an amazing figure and a, and a really someone who, who is worthy of, of more recognition. And, but then, you know, at the same time, and almost concurrently across town, you're getting stuff like the New York Dolls. And I, they're not trying to fool anyone. Like, I think they thought it was a laugh. You know, they like looked like, you know, meatpacking district hookers. They were not, you know, no one was going to mistake David Johansson for a, for a lady. Right. I think it was less about looking like a woman than it was that element of provocation, right? Oh, totally. And I think there, I always think of them as one of the first punk rock bands because not just the sound, but that idea like we know that this pisses people off and it's the look is almost as important as the sound. So yeah, they really, you know, they were wearing, you know, disco, cheap disco outfits and makeup and it was, and it made people mad. Like the rock critic from the Boston Globe, I couldn't get over this. And I was just telling someone about it recently. They're like, it it blew their minds. And it's like the rock critic from the Boston Globe, it wasn't even an indie paper. It wasn't some small thing. Described them as fag rock. And he was mad about it. He was really pissed. Like, if you're going to be a rock and roller, like you're going to be, I don't know, you're going to be a macho guy. And I, which was so weird because I'm like, you're just coming off Jimi Hendrix and his feather boas. And like David Bowie has had his first couple of albums out. And for, of all the people on God's good earth, I have no idea why this rock critic goes to Lou Reed. Lou Reed will sort it right out. Like in the meantime, Lou Reed was wearing black lipstick and like living with a, a trans partner. And so it's just really, it's really interesting. It was that provocation of like the sacred male space of rock and roll was being ruined. By lipstick. 
<laughs> yeah, but guys are wearing lipstick and platform boots. And it's interesting. So the 70s has this whole the glam rock and disco and punk have this whole subversion. You know, you look at artists like Sylvester and, you know, in punk, you have even women are, you know, like turning the beauty standard on its head. You know, Susie Sue is wearing black lipstick and mm-hmm. Sue Catwoman, like the way she's in England, the way she's wearing makeup. It's just not normal. It does look crazy. It's great, but it's just not like anything anyone had ever seen before. And yeah, going back and forth over the gender line and like gender performative, gender is part of performance and part of provocation. David Bowie and his Ziggy Stardust persona, which is sort of less about female impersonation and more about art. Um, So he kind of takes a little less crap for it, but still, uh, you know, like this will eventually evolve in the 80s. You'll see it become, both people are, Weirdly heteronormative, but super wearing super just gobs of makeup like Poison and Motley Crue. Who weren't getting flack for it, but Boy George was. Yeah, Boy George was and Adam Amp was because they weren't like manly men. Duran Duran was, was taking flack over it, you know. So it was just this fascinating like where the line is, is sort of invisible. But you know when you stepped on a landmine because it's like the second it isn't in the context of like heteronormative doodly guy stuff with guitars and drum solos, that is not okay. Right. And also because their lyrics are talking about like yeah, we just, we banging like ladies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As long as you're like, we got strippers, we got boobs, we got groupies, you're cool. Like you, all the hairspray and lipstick you want. But the second it becomes ambiguous, not good and god forbid the children should see it yeah whereas you know like i would i rather leave my young teenage girls with boy george or poison (laughs) 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 like i know they're not coming home pregnant from a culture club concert As we're in the 80s, I love 80s makeup so much. You know, I was born in the middle of the 70s, so that early 80s makeup to me, in my mind, as, you know, a six or seven-year-old is the epitome of glamour to me. (laughs) But also in the 80s, music and TV, kind of, you know, hearkening back to, you know, the influence of Hollywood, they were extremely influential in popularizing the new beauty ideals of the decade. And in a lot of ways, the 80s look was this very, and it probably plays in part two with the music and rock and roll scenes that we're just speaking about, but it was this maximalist shift away from the rather slightly more pared down, you know, look of the 1970s. And you talked about a movie and a television show in particular that I think played a huge role in this. And you mentioned Blade Runner. And then you also talk about Dynasty. And I think both of those are the epitome of what 80s makeup looks like to me, at least in my imagination. Oh, yeah. I mean, one, there's this mainstreaming of like what people think punk is. And so you get, you know, you get Daryl Hannah as as a, a skin job, you know, in her makeup, which is like what people, you know, like it's this new wave. What, you know, what is punk going to be in a hundred years? It's not even a hundred years. It's now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also something that is so extraordinarily 80s is retro futurism. Rachel. Rachel is Joan Crawford with the bumper bangs and the red lip and the like very exaggerated lash. 
which I am still go, I'm still going after that look. I'm like, oh, so there's someday, someday there'll be a patent peplum suit for me. <laughs> in the future. <laughs> I don't want a replicate. I just really want that suit. It's this idea, you know, that broad shoulder becomes a very big thing in the 80s and that like power lip. And I think it's reconciling like women start to enter the corporate world, you know, not entirely and not easily, but you start to see more women in terms of power. You see Margaret Thatcher on the world stage. Mm -hmm. And I think as a culture, we're still really, how do I balance out the idea of a woman who has some real genuine power in the world, but she's, she's a woman. Like, what do I do with that? And I think Margaret Thatcher sort of balanced it out with like a beehive hairdo and a pussycat bow. And, you know, she always had a little purse with her. And so they're like, we're giving you all the markers of femininity. It's like wrapping cheese around a pill for a dog. You know? <laughs> it's going to make it go down a little easier. And I think it's something we do. It's something we did during World War II. Well, and if you think about it, that that look of the 80s is very 1940s. And I think by wrapping power in femininity, it becomes easier to handle. It's also easier to knock a woman off her pedestal in the heels. There's a whole post-apocalyptic thing in the 80s that's going on in Blade Runner and um, certainly in um, Thunderdome and escape from New York. And these women all still had lipstick. Like the world was, we had just, I guess, had a nuclear war. We're stuck on planet Mongo and the case of Flash Gordon, whatever it is, it's a mess. And these women still have time for, for lipstick. Whereas women who are like feminist or strong female characters, like in the Terminator, no lipstick. She's got places to go and, and robots to kill. And like, so she's a strong female character because she is much, not not made up, but she's much less conspicuously made up. And I think, you know, the dynast, getting to the dynasty makeup, it's almost like enameling. Like it's so incredibly rich and impractical. Um, but even, you know, I, I am a huge American Horror Story fan. And I noticed when they cast Joan Collins in Apocalypse, she still had purple eyeshadow. Like the world is ending and she still has a smoky eye and it's awesome. So... Yeah, it's this incredibly luxurious and impractical. It's it's both a statement of it may be both making fun of like late stage capitalism and totally embracing it. Mm-hmm. I lived through that era. I don't well, maybe my best friend's mother, but like I don't remember anyone actually dressing that way because it just where would you go and what would you do and how would you get through the door and <laughs> you know it just wasn't a real it was consumer fantasy. You right. know, dynasty is just like, I am going to take my mink and go to my yacht and eat caviar. Like, it's just all about money and purchase power and maybe some sex in there. But like- Which is oh so 80s, right? I mean- Yeah, it's, it's really like so typical of the Reagan era and sort of both what we were telling women they wanted. And maybe it was buying, you know, maybe the lesson there that it was, we were- we were touting buying power over actual, after, over a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I like that a lot. You know, like you would really just like another fur coat, not, you know, like look how miserable she is. She's the, a CEO. Yeah. 
That's not for ladies. I got a good giggle about the passage of, you know, I think you were talking about dynasty or not slandy or one of them. And, and you're like, you were describing like their actions or like what happened during the plots. And, and you were like, they're always engaging in nebulous business affairs, but like nobody knows what that is. Yeah, I don't know what they do. I honestly don't remember what the business was. I remember that Dallas was, I guess, oil because they were in Texas. But like, I don't know what the business, they, they were always on like, private planes and doing business that were business things. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what business that is. So I, I never, you know, it never, my parents discouraged watching soap operas, but like, it certainly didn't make me want to grow up and be a business lady. Like, you know, maybe a drag queen, but like, it's certainly not a business because I don't know what they did. Yeah. It's just like, I have an important meeting. There was no going to the office and just shoving around papers. <laughs> it was always just a board meeting or like a corporate takeover. But you had to look the part. Yeah. And you had to have a hat for it. Yeah. Like a dress and a hat, you know, maybe a matching glove. But yeah, I, I don't know what they did to this day. If Joan Collins wants to write me and tell me that's great. <laughs> I want to pull this thread a little bit further in terms of like cosmetics and media Because you also write that going into the digital age, our relationship with lipstick could best be described as it's complicated. The rise of the internet, all of a sudden, what do we see happen when we have the internet now? And how was it interacting with beauty industry and also beauty standards? It's also been enough years now that you can look at early internet attempts at like beauty and the internet is like, that's adorable. Like they were so wrong. The thing is the internet, not that it's changed much if you're ever in a, you know, Reddit thread or anything, the internet really started as a male space. Like literally female users were a very small percentage of users. And so I think advertisers and people who had a financial stake in it, we're really interested in just getting female eyes on the internet. And so there are some early promotions, which are today just kind of, you're like, wow, that's, that's crazy and adorable. Like Netscape, well, we used to have CD-ROM. Netscape would give away CD-ROM that were branded. You got them at the Clinique counter. I was blown away by this. I'm like, I was so confused at first, but then I was like, actually, that's genius. Yeah. And who knew? I mean, like nobody knew anything about like what it was, what am I going to do with it? What I get it? And, like, where is my space on it? So it was just, you know, first about getting women interested in it. Like, hey, it's not a hundred percent porn and sports scores. Um, so like, what do women like? Women like makeup. We got to get makeup on the internet. And even the early executives were like, and it's still like, I'm a person who works professionally in the digital space of the internet as a copywriter. And I'm, it, it is a very weird space to work in because you're asking people to buy makeup they've never touched or smelled, or, you know, you don't know truly what the color is till you get it. So the initial thinking was like, this is great for reorders. Like if you know you wear Chanel number no. five, you'll go on and buy a bottle, but you'll never you're not going to buy lipstick off the internet. You're certainly not going to buy new lipstick off the internet. And that was wrong. <laughs> that was very, very wrong. Guilty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, th- that was extraordinarily wrong. But it was a reasonable guess given the information. Although, you know, women had bought from catalogs for years. So 
they were kind of unsure about what to do with the space. And one of the first thing we get as women is, is, or is identified as a female space are like web bloggers and people who are like oversharers because I'm Gen X and I'm like, don't put your business out in the street. People come rob your house because <laughs> that's what they told us. And, but we could get the first like confessional web bloggers and people are sharing their whole lives. And then a subset of that becomes, you know, I bought this lip gloss and it's just awesome. And so then it becomes vloggers, video bloggers, and they adapt to that. And, you know, and then suddenly we have these years go by, you get Facebook and it's about public appearances. This is the new town square. Uh Like this is the soil in which the influencer grows. And YouTubers. Yeah. There are people who are amateurs who just got very savvy at using it. You know, they understood the visual medium. And it, it, it's interesting because it sort of democratizes makeup application. It takes it out of the hands of the Kevin O'Quans and the Carol Shaw from Lorac and Bobby Brown. Those one in the 90s, those were all, they were the, they were the go-to. Yeah. I definitely still have Kevin's first book on my shelf right behind me. <laughs> No, that book was everything. And I was actually, the Makeup Museum uh, in New York, which is uh, just an awesome organization, was super helpful with this book. And I got stuff out of Kevin's archives for the book. And the building of expertise, you know, he was the max factor of his moment. And, you know, was a trendsetter and introduced people to things that had previously been underground, like regular, everyday assigned female at birth women now use contouring is probably because Kevin O'Quan brought it up from the underground, brought it up to the drag scene. Drag, yeah. One of the other things about, that you get to with like contouring and stuff is like, I, I talk a lot about what came up from the underground and what, came up, you know, in the 80s and 90s, in the 80s and 90s were very much about the mainstream, absolutely strip mining subculture. And so you start to see, um, you know, Gwen Stefani wearing bindis and Madonna is Hispanic for a period of time. And uh, so they take from different subcultures and some of it's benign, like Avril Lavigne getting to call herself punk. And some of it is a little, is a lot more problematic. Well, almost just straight out cultural appropriation, really. Subcultural appropriation. Yeah, like the henna tattoos, the bindis, bigness of the 90s. And early 2000s. And the internet really allows that because suddenly things that were very, that were hidden from most people, like drag or lowrider culture, are suddenly just much more accessible. And you can see something and be like, well, I like that. I want it. And Gwen Stefani is still like, you know, going on about like, it comes from a place of love. And People are like, I don't feel loved. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting period because the amount of information I have from my clients about writing for the internet or what they want to be on the internet is very specific and people are data mined and they really, they don't seem to mind in the way previous generations were creeped out by it. And millennials have never known a world where they like have not had access to like every piece of information in human history mm-hmm. and they're doing interesting things with it but it's it's really changed the landscape in a, in a just for ways that are both very good and not so good 
Yeah, I mean, and and, and you you really say that the in that like you know the, this rise in kind of like internet culture and specifically of the influencer and the and the bloggers and the vloggers that it was really a game changer for lipstick. Yeah, it really was because suddenly they had to react fast. I, I think a lot of what a company like Lancome or Revlon or you know just any huge company would pick up is they picked up off the runway. How it got to the runway is a long story, but that took a long, it, it was a slower turnaround. Mm-hmm. Now stuff turns around just much faster and it comes from places like, what are the K-pop fans wearing? And it's very quick and it's very disposable, especially with things like makeup, because, you know, like I was walking around the city last night and I was like, oh, I see we all dress with machine now, you know, like we all dress fast fashion and I'm a little guilty of that too. But like makeup is even faster than that because you can change your lipstick 10 times a day. And people demand personal, a level of personalization that they've never had before. I mean, literally we're, ha- you know, you are like, 40 bucks away from a custom blended lipstick that is yours and yours alone now. Like you can I have two. <laughs> yeah. And it's a fascinating technology. And L'Oreal is trying to put it out for the home use. And that machine, the per se, is hooked up to influencers and what influencers are wearing today. So you could wake up one morning and I'm like, well, I'm not really a coral person, but like there it is in your medicine cabinet because that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. So it's just faster and faster and more people just demand more personalization. They keep just huge, bigger wardrobes of makeup. I think if you looked at your mom or your grandma, she's like, well, this is my everyday pink. And this is, you know, maybe this is my red. I've had it since high school. Right. You know, and like maybe once in a while adding to something that, but they had their like go-tos and people are not even loyal to brands anymore. They're, you know, they will skip around. The whole world is your Sephora. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to talk on on the current state of multicultural beauty today because this landscape is blowing up at the moment. You've already mentioned uh, Rihanna's line. Do you want to talk a little bit more about some of these Black-owned beauty brands that that are doing phenomenally well at the moment? Yeah, I have nothing but good things to say about it because it is just... For once in our history of beauty, like beauty is not a singular thing. It is not white and blue eyed and blonde and thin and young. Youth has always been, always been a thing. Like that is the reason we wear makeup when you really come down to it. So to see more ages of women, see more variety of not just women, but like non-binary and gender non-conforming and just that, and just that skin tone is more than like half a dozen shades. Mm-hmm. So it, it's amazing and it's great. And I, I am truly impressed by how fast this happened and how, uh, you know, we are giving women power in the marketplace that previously had no access to it. The caveat that comes with is a lot of it can be real performative. There should be a real change in the industry as well. Cause this year, I think it's this year, we just hit 20% of boards in the U.S. are women, which is still, we are 51% of the population and we're 20%. And that's imbalanced too. It's like of the Fortune 500s, we're very few, we have very few of the seats, you know, on the makeup boards and the, the fashion boards, we have more of the seats. Mm-hmm. 
the real lasting important change is not going to be just identifying new consumer bases. It's going to be who sits at the table. Right. You know, Kylie Jenner, for example, has rightly taken crap in the past because her nude is based off the idea that when you're naked, you're a very pale color. It goes with white skin. And so not everybody looks that way when they're nude. And so um, I don't know who sits in her development department. I don't know who sits on her board. I, I don't know, but somebody okayed that. And a lot of companies are being more thoughtful in what they present to the public. But I really want to know who are the photographers who take the ads? Who are the designers? Who sits on the board? Who is in product development? All of those spots have got to look like America more. Uh-huh. than they currently do. And that is going to, that is real long-term change, not just feeling like you found buried treasure because you just discovered like black and Latina women buy makeup too, but genuinely putting in the work to make your company a place that looks like your consumership. This ties in really well with your very last sentence of your book because you say that lipstick's past holds our story. And this is kind of like that, like it's a reflection of culture and the changes in culture that we've been seeing over the last, you know, 100 years, 200 years, really, arguably. Yeah. I mean, when you come right down to it, I love lipstick. I love makeup. These days, I mean, you know, because I'm a shut in and I'm, you know, when I freelance from home like everybody else, most days I look like a pile of wet laundry. And then some days I get made up and it's like therapy. And I put on my what I have my lady eye, my performance drag for the first time in a year and a half last week. And I was like, oh, there she is. I remember this bitch. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and I felt really powerful and I had my f- giant fake lashes and all my glitter and, you know, loved it. If that's what turns you on, if, I'm all no pressure. If you don't like wearing makeup, nobody needs it. If you like it, go nuts. If you don't like it, that's cool too. But ultimately, lipstick was a lens and not a tool. Right, it was right. a way of viewing American history. I wanted it not to be another coffee table book. And I wanted it not to, if I hear that damn thing about Elizabeth Arden and the suffragists getting free sticks one more time, I'm going to scream because <laughs> I think it's not true. I, I honestly don't think it's a thing, but I, I was so tired of seeing that. I was like, no, it's time to explore the myth. And it's a, really a way of looking at the American experience and our history. So for me, it was, even as a fan of it, it was not, it was a lens. And it was just the way we talk to women and the way we talk to gender and the way we talk to class and aspirations and certainly race was fascinating to me. And there was stuff I found like, I think one of the first pieces of information I found was the first place I went online was the National Archives. And America is just a gumball machine of weirdnesses. Like something is going to flop out. You just don't know what it's going to be. The first thing I found searching the National Archives for lipstick was a a newsletter for the town of Manzanar. And it wasn't even a town. It was in a prison camp. It was a prison camp we had for Japanese Americans during World War II. And they're like, yeah, you know what would really cheer you up now that you're tan because we stole your house and your land and your business. And like, and they're forcing you to work outside. Yeah. And we forced you out into the middle of the desert. You should go down to the general store and buy a new lipstick. And it just blew my mind 
because I was like, well, there it is in a nutshell. There is racism and consumerism and um, just our can-do spirit, like just all wrapped up in one tiny paragraph. And that was one of the first things I found. And I was like, this is a thing that's a thing. And I can't believe more people have not been on top of it. And I had the book rejected a lot because people are like, either A, we already have lipstick books and they meant coffee table books, or they could not find a similar history. And I was just like, I can't believe that, I can't believe that more people have not been on top of this because it is fascinating. And it was just even it was more of what I thought it was when I got into it. And like, yeah, there were myths I had to let go of. Like, I thought that suffragist thing was a thing with Elizabeth Arden. I thought that Old West thing was a thing and the association with sex workers. And no, you have to like, there's a lot of American history that when we really examine, we have to let go of. It's, you know, so much of it is George Washington and his cherry tree. It's, it sounds right and it appeals to us, but it's not the truth. Not when you peel those onion skins back. Mm-hmm, not at all. And so I, I I feel very lucky to have been able to write this book at the time I did. And I, I hope other people pick it up because I was like, do you know this? This is crazy. You know, it was so fascinating to me. And I'm a huge fan of history and nonfiction that to put something out in the world that I think, you know, people, women deserve their histories. Trans people deserve their histories. Women of color deserve their moment in the sun. And you and you did such a spectacular job of telling all of those stories and also weaving them all together. Yeah, I, I feel incredibly just lucky to have been able to do it. And I'm kind of surprised, like, there isn't just a whole shelf in the library that's just like, let's talk about lipstick, you know, or let's <laughs> talk about eyeshadow, you know, but it it was fascinating. And so I... I, I also laugh at myself because I am friends with Joe Weldon, who's also known as Joe Boobs, who's a burlesque performer and historian, and also wrote this wonderful book on the history of leopard print, which my computer is currently sitting on right now for inspiration. And Joe's joined us as a guest on Dressed, so. Yeah, so listen to Joe. She she just, she contains multitudes of wisdom, and she was writing it, and we were talking about it, and I was like, yeah, I see lipstick everywhere, and she's like, yeah, if you have a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. And I was, and it's true, (laughs) you know, and I, I, but I really do, I am constantly amazed at the places I find it and the importance that it has. And it's sometimes a small thing. And again, as I said, it was a very hard book to sell. And, um, and so all praise to Prometheus Books and my editor, Jake, for taking the leap with me. But I used to have these screaming, like kind of coming screaming at my agent, like if Mark Kolansky can write two different books on seafood. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like half the population may not eat oysters. Why the <laughs> hell can I not sell a book and like 81% American women own lipsticks? Because so it's such a common experience and such a good, you know, just such a good way to see women and gender in America, women, everything. And so I was super surprised that I was, more people haven't thought of it. So, but I'm glad I could do it. I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. I already told you this before we started recording, and I've even told Cassidy because sometimes, because we're you know we're we're producing episodes, and usually one of us is heading up a particular episode, and then the other one is heading up another episode. We don't always read every single. I mean, we read all the books of the episodes that we produce, but but she might not. And I told her, and she's doing her PhD right now, so she has a ton of reading on her plate. I'm like, 
whenever you're ready to stop reading things for school, you have to read this book. I'm like, this is one of my like favorite kind of fashion history, you know, titles that I've read in a really long time. So thank you for it. That's what I also, I wanted people to be able to just sit down and read it and not feel like they were wading through semiotics or something like so, just so dense that they couldn't get to it. So I, I am glad that, not that you wouldn't get it, but just, you know, that people are in, just enjoy the process of reading it. It's a very enjoyable book to read. So thank you so much. And before we sign off, um, you did mention Lady I earlier. Who is Lady I? And if they want to learn a little bit more about your career outside of being a writer, where might they find you? I, yeah, I have a couple of day jobs, one weird night job. I am the Semitic sword swallowing sweetheart of the sideshow. Uh, <laughs> I am, I am also a professional fire eater and sword swallower and human blockhead and pain resistor. I do the sideshow arts and I write. And I am a, I'm a copywriter for a number of beauty brands, I'm a freelancer. So hire me to do all the things. But uh, yeah, I, that is my, my, effectively my drag persona. And she's got her own wardrobe and her own um, makeup bag. Yeah, so I'm also the Lady I, and you can get me through Lady I, A-Y-E, the piratyway.com uh, and uh, I'm just starting to perform again and I will be at New York City's Comic-Con with Doom Squad for DC Comics week after next, 7th through 10th, on and off. So yeah, it's a, it's a thing that, yeah, I've been on, you can catch me on Dickinson. I'm somewhere in the background at Gossip, the first Gossip Girl, Mysteries of the Museum. I do, a, I used to do a lot. So yeah, yeah, I'm the, I'm the sweetheart of the sideshow in addition to like now being a, an author. <laughs> <laughs> I always love asking our guests, like, what is the other thing that you do in your life? Because so many people have such really amazing answers to that question. Yeah, and I know the great librarian Tigger via that and Joe Weldon. And yeah, there's, there's some very, very smart people up in uh, the New York burlesque scene. Absolutely. Eilis, thank you so much for joining us. This was a treat. And everybody, please rush out, get your hands on a copy of The Red Menace. Um, it is not quite out yet, but it is available for pre-order, if I am correct. Yeah, you can get it. Uh, go to lipstickbook.com. That is my website, and that'll direct you to places where you can buy it. And uh, you can pre-order it from Roman, R-O-W-M-A-N.com, Amazon, wherever you buy. If you want to ask your indie store for it, I love that because indie bookstores are the best. But it is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, I believe. So yes, run out and get it. It makes a lovely present. Get several copies <laughs> and, and enjoy it. Great holiday gift, just saying. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Eilis, thank you again for joining us and gifting us all with this fascinating examination of lipstick throughout American history. You know, April, these are the conversations that we love to have on Dressed, where fashion intersects with politics, culture, race, gender, technology, economics, the list goes on. And Eilis' book really illustrates that lipstick has been a powerful player in expressing all of the above. 
Yes. And I just want to leave our listeners with an additional thought on that because I least quotes Mussolini in the book, a surprising Very person surprising. perhaps <laughs> to quote in a book on the history of lipstick. But apparently at one point he said, quote, fashion is more powerful than dictators. And I had never heard this quote before. And I thought that it was super duper interesting and supremely relevant to the exact reasons why we make this show. So that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the power of lipstick next time you get dressed. And remember, we always love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so via email at dress to iheartmedia.com or you can DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast where we post images to accompany each week's episode. You can also follow along on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you Tuesday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.